Can we get started? I have the privilege of teaching from Isaiah this morning, and I'm really thankful for that opportunity. As, uh, as Don Rowe pointed out, 66 chapters may coincide with 66 books of the Bible. Not sure, maybe. But um, we'll do our best to summarize this and see the overarching theme of the book. Let me go ahead and pray for us. Father, thank you so much for your love for us. Thank you for your holy word. Thank you that you are just and you judge evil. Thank you that you don't let evil go unpunished. You don't let it get swept under the rug. But you fully punish it. And yet, Father, though we are evil, you also fully forgive us through the punishment upon Jesus in our stead. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes afresh by your Holy Spirit to see the, the depth and the power of your judgment and the depth and the power of your grace. Father, would you please open us up to the same gospel that we try to remind ourselves of every day and that we hear every week preach from the pulpit. God, we pray that you would open us up to your love through opening us up to the beauty of the cross. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Welcome. Isaiah. So, why do we call it Isaiah? Um, Isaiah 1.1 says, The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. The one vision with a list of kings implies that not only the first few chapters, but the entire book is the vision of Isaiah. Authorship and date. Um, though some have questioned whether or not Isaiah wrote chapters 40 through 66, the writers of the New Testament ascribe the book to him, not only quoting from chapters 7 and 9, but also from chapters 40 and 53. Matthew 3.3 says, For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. This comes from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. Matthew 8.17 says, This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. This quote comes from Isaiah 53.4. Isaiah ministered from 740 B.C. until sometime after 701 B.C., so he must have written the book around that time. Um, the reason I bring this up is some, some scholars uh, wonder about whether that chapter 40 and following was written by Isaiah. Some wonder that from a standpoint of they still believe it's God's word, but they think it was written later or something, but... Um, but many argue that because they deny the possibility of prophecy being fulfilled. Because the, the, that, section, that second section of Isaiah has very specific prophecies uh, that were obviously fulfilled. And so from some, some of the motives, sometimes, not all the time, for that, that Deutero or second Isaiah view is that they deny the possibility of prophecy. So I think you can see from the fact that the New Testament authors quoted these parts from the latter half of Isaiah saying these things Isaiah spoke when he wrote or when he said that um, that Isaiah clearly you know prophesied those things all right so who is Isaiah Isaiah is the son of Amoz the Lord gave Isaiah a vision of himself and called him to ministry in the year that King Uzziah died around 740 BC Isaiah lived long enough to record the death of Sennacherib uh, in 681 B.C., he had a wife and children, appears to have lived in Jerusalem, and may have been sawn in two, according to tradition, by Manasseh, king of Judah. Hebrews 11.37 talks about how people were martyred, of whom the world is not worthy. And one of the, the phrases is, people were sawn in two. And apparently there's a long-standing tradition among, uh, among the church that, that he was sawn in two. So, yeah, be thankful, right? Be thankful. <laughs> How's my day going? Well, I'm sorry. Repented. Yeah, that's true. So, oh yeah, so Isaiah and Manasseh are hanging out together 
in glory right now. So that's, that's a great reminder of the gospel. I'm really glad you said that. That's awesome. <laughs> All right. So literary features. It's primarily prophecy. It's also anthology, which is a collection of individual compositions. Uh, you find poetry using imagery, simile, and metaphor. There's satire. Um, not necessarily like, <laughs> but it's an object of attack. It, ha- it includes an object of attack, a vehicle in which the attack is embodied. This is literarily, obviously. A stated or implied norm by which the criticism is conducted in a prevailing tone of ridicule or disgust. So we, we have fridge magnets for like Isaiah 7, behold, a virgin shall conceive, and Isaiah 9, you know, unto us a child is born, a son is given. There are all these powerful, powerful uh, prophetic gospel statements throughout the, the book. But what I realized in studying this again was there is a very, very large overarching emphasis on judgment. Uh, first, as a covenant lawsuit against Israel for her unbelief and unrepentance and continued sin. It's like a lawsuit. And then against the nations, the wicked nations. And then and there's prophecies of judgment on Israel and Judah, you know, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. There's prophecies of judgment that, um, that come true, obviously. And yet it, it's this real judgment backdrop in, through which the light of the gospel shines for us. So this satire, this judging is, is common throughout the book. And then you have lyric visions of redemption and then cosmic drama. Uh, one uh, commentator, or actually I think it was the ESV Bible comment on it, just talks about that you know, the relationship with God and his people, that, there, that it, it, there's this elements structurally of, of the drama, and then apocalyptic literature. So some of the theological themes in Isaiah, we are going to read some of Isaiah, by the way. So, so <laughs> some of the theological themes in Isaiah. Um, the central theme of the book is God himself, who first does all things for his own sake and is the gloriously central figure in all of reality. So Isaiah 48, verse 11 says this, For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. He talks about restraining his anger, deferring his anger, and, and, um, and, and he talks about doing these things for his own sake. That when he redeems us and rescues us, it's for his glory. He gets the glory. And then Isaiah 45, verses 22 to 25, says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return to me. Uh, Yeah, to me every knee shall bow, Every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength to him shall come and, and be ashamed, all who are incensed against him. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. So there's this hope, this gospel hope of being covered in the righteousness of, of Christ, this gospel prophecy. And his emphasis is salvation comes from me alone. And so why is there this emphasis? Uh, It's in large part, just like in Jeremiah, that God is indicting people about their idolatry. There's these long passages of like, just showing the foolishness, you know, of taking created materials and quote, forming a God out of those. And uh, it goes on and on and on to show the absolute foolishness of idolatry. And so... God is emphasizing, I'm the only Savior. Don't, I'm going to do it in such a way that your idols can't take credit for it, that the false gods can't take credit. I alone am the Lord. Another thing we see is that God is the Holy One of Israel who is high and lifted up, but also dwells with the contrite and lowly. Uh, I'm not going to read all of those verses. 
Um, there's that famous verse that talks about, Behold, I'm high and lifted up. He dwells in heaven, but also with the one who is contrite in heart. And I just, I love that image. It's so comforting because um, I don't know how long it's been since you've been in school or whatever, but, uh, or you can Google it, but <clears throat> they do these things where they show on the earth a vision of just like Google Earth, right? You can do a Google Earth. And they just keep backing up and backing up and backing up and backing up and it just gets smaller and smaller and smaller and all of a sudden you're passing all these things and you're like, you realize how small we are. The Bible says that God looks down upon the stars. <laughs> he has to look down on the universe in a sense. And yet, zoom, 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 in, 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 America, Florida, Pensacola, your home address, tearfully asking for the Lord's forgiveness. You know, he dwells in a high and holy place and also with those who are humble and contrite in heart, which is just such a wonderful extreme. I love it. Um, another thing is that God is sovereign over the whole world and his wrath is fierce. He claims ownership of the whole Lord. He's not just a territorial God like these fallen angels are throughout the world, like the Prince of Persia in the book of Daniel and stuff. God is the creator God who is the only true God who rules over the entire earth. He's not just the God of Israel who can be sort of contained or like, he, well, he deals with them, but this God deals with them. No, he said, the whole earth is mine and all the people are mine, and I'm reclaiming the nations uh, for, for the inheritance of my son. Also, uh, he is he's the one who atones for sin, whose salvation flows in endless supply, and whose gospel is good news of happiness. Read um, 12.3. Just to get some samplings. It's a long book, so there will be much that we don't talk about, but I hope that your appetite is whetted and that you have a good overview by the end of this morning. Verse 3, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. You know, we know what that's like, that promise of embracing God's forgiveness through faith in Jesus and experiencing assurance, which gives us joy. So God alone atones for sin. Another thing is that he's moving history toward the blessing of his people and the exclusive worship due him. Isaiah 43 3 verses 7. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. Isn't that beautiful? Again, all this judgment, we'll see more of that, but just this love of God. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. God is fulfilling his promise that he made to Adam and Eve, right, but also to Abraham. In you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. In your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. There's this worldwide salvation, though some will be lost. There's this general big picture of, I will fulfill my promise. I will send the seed of the woman who will save my people and gather the nations. And then the last is, he's the only Savior, and the world will know it. Um, and so... We've talked about that already. So theological themes. Therefore, to trust and rest in his gospel promises is our only strength. I'm going to read to you chapter 30, verse 15. For thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. So this is the opposite of idolatry and the frenetic, weird, pagan practices that coincide with idolatry. And all these things you have to do to make sure your, your crops come in and temple prostitutes, just crazy stuff. He's like, no, return to me 
Trust in me and rest in me, and in that you will find strength and life and salvation. And then to delight ourselves in his word of grace is our refreshing feast. There's that passage of, um, come you who have no money, come and buy and, and drink and eat. And then to serve his cause is our worthy devotion. And then to ultimately reject him is endless death. All right, so what I also learned is that a general overview of the whole book of Isaiah is contained in microcosm in uh, chapter 1, verse 2 through chapter 2, verse 5. I'm not going to read the entire passage, but I'm just going to walk us through this. First, God has blessed his people abundantly, and they should be thankful to him. But instead, they have, quote, despised the Holy One of Israel. So this is this covenant lawsuit. Like, here, I'm, I'm judging you. I've been patient. I've been, I'm slow to anger. But your sins have arisen to this point that requires judgment. Just like um, the Israelites had to be enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, or 430 years, right? because the sins of the Amorites were not yet complete. That means God, in a sense, didn't feel right about sending the Israelites to take out the Amorites until their sins had gotten, humanly speaking, earthly justice sense to a certain level. God had been waiting and waiting and waiting, and, and Israel and Judah had now reached that level. And that's what we see. He's going indictment, indictment, indictment. God is going to punish his people to bring them to repentance, or at least a remnant to repentance. Judah performs religious duties and worship, but neglects caring for the weak, thus showing that their hearts are far from God and his heart. I love that. That's something that I hadn't seen before as I was reading about this, that there's this connection of these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. How do you know that? Because they neglect the weak. You can say you love God all you want, but if you don't care about those who can't help themselves, that's when you, when you draw near with your heart to God, his heart transforms your heart to, to be like his, right? I thought that was great. Um, the proof is in our relationships, right? And then the last, God called his people to embody faithfulness and love, and they have done the opposite. God will purge Zion of some of its sinful members, but also bring redemption and atonement through the suffering Messiah who will make a new heavens and new earth. Therefore, the hearers should return and rest in God's gracious promises and walk in the light of the Lord. The red-handed, you know, bloody hands, the red-handed who repent and trust in the Lord will be clean-handed through Christ's blood and shed in their place. You know, come, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. You know, this promise of redemption. Okay, so you cannot read all this, and I know that. But guess what? I found out that this great feature, right? Watch this. Uh-oh. What? Okay. What? Okay. So this is from the Bible Project, and I love this stuff. It's, I'm an art major and visual, so I hope this is, is helpful. So there's, this is how we're doing the structure of Isaiah, right? So. Um, what does this say up here? First, you've got this overall, overall uh, summary of his message, judgment and hope. Sound familiar? Law and gospel. You know, it's like, it's kind of a recurring theme in the Bible, right? Judgment. Israel's rebellion will come at a cost. So Babylon and Assyria, the, the northern kingdom of Israel was sent off and, and taken out by the Assyrians, and the southern kingdom of Judah was uh, exiled into Babylon. And so, uh, but also hope, the fulfillment of God's covenant promises, the future king from the line of David, Israel's obedience to the covenant, and God's blessing to the nations. Um, so that overarching theme. So the first we see here is, uh, I'll do it this way, I'm going to give you the overarching summary. So chapter 1, verse 12, judgment and hope for Jerusalem. And then... Chapter 13 to 27, in the middle up there, judgment and hope for the nations. Chapter 28 through 39, the rise and fall of Jerusalem. And then you have exile. This is all being prophesied. Um, this announcement of hope, 
the servant fulfills God's mission, and the servants inherit God's kingdom. So again, judgment and salvation. So uh, keep in mind that Isaiah was prophesying the details of the exile uh, at around 200 years, I believe, before it actually happened. Um, 100 or so years, at least. So um, that's important to remember. So let's zoom in on these things. So judgment and hope for Jerusalem. All right? You've got old Jerusalem, rebellion, idolatry, and injustice, and then new Jerusalem, justice and peace for all nations. You know, we see that obviously in the book of Revelation, right? I saw a new Jerusalem coming out of heaven. And then um, chapter 6 is this famous call of Isaiah through this vision, this temple vision, um, where we find out in the Gospel of John chapter 12 that Isaiah was actually seeing the divine Son of God enthroned. It says that he was actually seeing Jesus, pre-incarnate Jesus, on the throne specifically, showing that he's God. If you're ever sharing the Gospel with Jehovah's Witnesses, that's a, a great place to point them to that may not be in their like prep guide of things to answer that Christians say, you know. Um, and so uh, there's this vision, this sending Isaiah out, but I want to read something that's kind of shocking about this call of Isaiah. Imagine if God was calling you to the ministry, and then this was, this was God's plan for you, for your ministry. Whether you got sawn in two or not, you know, we don't know for sure. <laughs> All right. So after there's this glorious vision, um, verse 8 of chapter 6, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. Okay, you're like, who will I send? Okay, I'm going on a mission for God, right? Please send me. Like, what's this mission trip going to be like? Here's our after church meeting about going to Uganda. You know, right, right. What's, what's, what are we going to do there? Um, it's kind of hard, right? Verse 9, and he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. That is shocking. Like, are you, you get that? What does that make? How does that strike you? If you, if you think about that, what kind of, talk to us about how that makes you feel. Someone. It's the opposite of what you would expect to be doing on a, on a mission trip. Like you would think you're going out to help the people come to the Lord and instead it's saying make the heart of this people dull so that they don't see. It's like, what? Yeah. Obviously God's sovereign over whether we see or not. But there's also, and it's a mystery, human responsibility that you can reject God and then he will use means to further harden your heart. That happens to some people, religious people. Now he's going on a mission trip not to Persia, right, or Egypt. He's going to the church, right? Israel and Judah. He's going to the, quote, people of God on this mission trip. But it's a mission of judgment. Yes, there's hope eventually, but I want us to see that emphasis. Verse 11, then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. <clears throat> the holy seed is its stump. So there's that note of hope. The holy seed is its stump. There's going to be a branch uh, of Jesse that comes out. Isaiah chapter 11 talks about this branch, Jesus. There's this stump of a tree, but yet there's green leaves that start to shoot up. Uh, this promise of redemption. All right. And then, verses 7 through 12. Yes. Okay, 
Um, We've talked about it before. If you want me to talk Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Thanks. Right, I'm a man of unclean lips. Why? Sacrifice. Sacrifice. Yeah. yeah. That's God's hmm. He touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Hmm. That's the ultimate theme of all of our preaching and hmm. teaching is to preach the atoning work of Jesus, who died as the sacrificial lamb of God and takes away the sins of the world. Hmm. Yeah. Well, thanks be to God. Yeah. Let us go, go for yeah. and serve. That's really cool. I hadn't heard that before. I mean, like with our worship service. So that's great. awesome. Thanks for, for saying that. Um, good. All right. So up here, 7 to 12 has to do with uh, King Ahaz. It says, boo, hiss. <laughs> uh, it says, you're going down. God will raise up a new king. And then, so God's judging the earthly king and then promising the new king. Uh, chapter 7, you know, God will, the virgin will conceive and bear a child and call his name Emmanuel. Um, and so that promise of a new king, Jesus, the Messiah. And then, as I mentioned in 11, there's this holy seed, question mark, the stump. See up top, there's the stump, Israel cut down. And then you've got, there's a new branch. That's what I was talking about up there. All right? I'll try to go through this fairly quickly and not read all the details. But then you have, so... This is so that you can know what's in Isaiah, okay? Because we're going to be quoting from different verses and stuff. But again, this is the overview so you kind of know the basic content and the flow of it. And so judgment and hope for the nations 
Um, the fall of Babylon and Israel's neighbors, chapters 13 to 23, Babylon and Assyria, um, God promises judgment on those whom he uses to judge his people. All right. And then a tale of two cities, the lofty city of pride, which is destined for ruin. Um, and then the new Jerusalem, God's kingdom over all nations, no more suffering or death. <clears throat> Again, old Jerusalem being judged, new Jerusalem. Old Jerusalem, there's these series of judgments on Jerusalem, right? And the Old Testament, this judgment. And then in Jesus' earthly ministry, just like Isaiah, he is prophesying the coming destruction of Jerusalem. That's part of his ministry, is talking about not one stone will be left upon another. And again, in fulfillment of the new covenant. All right, so the rise and fall of Jerusalem. So you have the indictment, chapters 28 through 35, on uh, Jerusalem's leader, leaders. And then um, Hezekiah's rise, chapters 36 through 38. That God, there's this historic. There's a lot of prophecy and poetry, but there's this historical interlude in the book that talks about Sennacherib's army mocking God's people and mocking the God of Israel uh, under Hezekiah's reign, and how um, God sends this angel of death who kills like eighty something thousand of the soldiers of Syrians, or one hundred eighty thousand. I don't remember exactly. You can read it. Um, probably listen to Metallica in the background while you're listening to it. Just what you said. All right. Uh, chapter 39, Hezekiah's fall, and then it says, no, Babylon will betray and destroy Jerusalem. Um, then Babylon attacks. Sure enough, 100 years later, they, they go into exile after Isaiah's prophecy. All right. And then, so there's this 40 to 48, this announcement of hope. Remember, law and gospel, right? Like Joel said, I'm a man of unclean lips. Again, big picture. It's kind of interesting. Maybe even Isaiah 6 is kind of an overview of the whole book, you know? I'm, y'all are a people of unclean lips, you know? And there will be judgment, um, but there will also be sacrifice to which you can be forgiven. So this announcement of hope, you know, you think of Handel's Messiah. A lot of that comes from this comfort, comfort my people. Um, so Isaiah is not only prophesying at least 100 years ahead of time, the fact that the exile will occur, he is also kindly prophesying that it will end. He's prophesying the end of the exile. And so um, God's restoration, and then, but Israel is still rebellious. And so chapters 49 to 55, the servant fulfills God's mission. Here we have uh, these, the servant songs about Jesus um, coming to save his people. And um, so the God's servant is rejected and killed, but lives again. Obviously, I want to read from Isaiah 53. Um, I will do that when we get into the part specifically about Jesus. Um, and then chapters 56 through 66, the servants inherit God's kingdom. So God's servant, Jesus, fulfills God's mission. And then we, the servants who trust in him, inherit God's kingdom. And here's this prophecy of this new Jerusalem and that those who trust in the Lord will be part of this and those who, who don't will be cast out. And the book actually ends with this great, beautiful scene of hope in the new Jerusalem and all these great images of that. But then the last line is like, but the wicked, those who don't turn to the Lord, will their bodies will be strewn in the streets and their worm does not die. It's talking about eternal suffering, just like Jesus talks about. So again, we see Jesus as the fulfillment of every single prophet you know, in the Old Testament. Every prophet is foreshadowing the ministry of Jesus Christ. There's an aspect there. And so that's, that's this overview. All right. And then we, this is where I want to read more and kind of flow through about how the book points to Jesus. So Jesus is the servant savior to whom Isaiah pointed. Jesus would first be born of a virgin. Now, some of you have read all this tons in your life, but I don't want to presume that all of you had have, you know, I didn't get saved till I was a senior in high school and I started visiting the church when I was like 17. So 
hopefully God continues to bring people who don't know this stuff yet to the classes and everything. Or even if you've been a Christian for a long time, but you just haven't read Isaiah. Um, so I want to read through these things that are so explicit as prophecies of Jesus Christ. Um, so first, that Jesus would be born of a virgin. Isaiah 7, verse 14. Merry Christmas, right? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which we know means God with us. And then Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 to 23. So I want us to see this. The immediate context of Isaiah seems to be something using the term virgin more loosely immediately and then talking about something in the near future, if you read the details right after that. But we know that Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us that the ultimate prophetic fulfillment of what we just read in Isaiah 7 is, uh, is Jesus and, and the virgin birth of Mary. Matthew chapter 1, verse 20 to 23. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, quote, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So we see this, you know, one of the reasons we're doing this Eat the Book class is not just so that we'd be familiar with sort of the background info and general content of all the books of the Bible, but just like we demonstrate from the pulpit every week, but also through our teaching and classes, we learn how to study and understand God's Word uh, as we walk through this together. So one principle that we see here is that when you see certain prophecies in the Old Testament, sometimes there is an immediate fulfillment that you have to acknowledge. Like there are specific details that's like, no, this is, this is talking about like before the exile and this and this happens or whatever. But we also know that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we can confidently know that based on the way the gospel writers and, and the Apostle Paul and other writers of the New Testament interpret those prophecies, that there is something called an initial fulfillment and then an ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Just like in the Psalms, there are certain things that are about David and involved his own earthly personal life, but also were prophecies of Jesus. And so th that's just something to keep in mind about how we understand the Scriptures. Because you might tell a non-Christian friend, oh, Isaiah 7, it's about the virgin birth of Jesus, and they might take you back and go, okay, let's look what this really says. And if you read down, like, before he can, you know, he's eating curds, and then this, this nation and this nation, and it's clear that there's another initial fulfillment, and that shouldn't throw you off. You just need to be aware that that's how the Holy Spirit of God works through the writers of Scripture. All right, and then that he would be God in the flesh. Chapter 9, verse 6. Um, I was in a class, an Old Testament class at Warren Wilson College, a little hippie college in Asheville, North Carolina, and um, we had a Reformed Jewish rabbi. So there's Orthodox, Conservative, and Reform. Reform is like sort of the more liberal wing of contemporary Judaism. And so he's a great guy. I'm not ripping on him at all. He's awesome. I, I, I really like him a lot. And, but um, when we came to this passage, it was really interesting because obviously... You know, as a Christian, a, a year-old Christian, I was pretty uh, zealous in, in thinking about this. Um, Isaiah 9, 6, what do we do with this, right? I was in Matthew 9, sorry. Isaiah 9, 6. Would someone read that out? Good. So I think the contemporary Jewish understanding of that is that it's, it's really mighty hero, not mighty God. But it's interesting because kind of like the cults do, they'll be like, well, this means a God or whatever. If you look at the 
surrounding words around it, it becomes even more clear. Everlasting Father, you know, the, that eternal aspect. And we know that the way that the word El is used throughout, um, that it, it does in fact mean mighty God. And it's shocking, and it's a clear prophecy of the incarnation of the divine Son of God becoming flesh. He's a child that was born unto us. So it's, it's just a reminder that though the gospel came in more of a shadow form under the Old Testament, it's still there. And it's still there clear enough for people to actually trust in a coming Messiah and be saved, right? There's always been one way of salvation. And then he would bring justice to the nations. Would someone like to read chapter 42, verses 1 through 4? I'm sorry, there, there hasn't been as much discussion today, but I'm, I'm trying to help us get through the whole thing in, in time for worship. But if there's something that comes to mind and you have a thought or idea, please <coughs> jump in. Just all of us, because we're in the image of God, long for justice. You know, we watch TV shows like Cold Case. We were watching that recently, Cold Case. Why do you spend an hour watching about a murder that happened like 50 years ago? Because you want justice. And you're not going to finish the show until you find out that they really found out who it was that was guilty and proved it. And it's like, ah, you can sigh, right? We all long for justice. And tempor temporal justice is a thing, Romans 13, that God uses to uphold society and things like that. But as you know, there's so, so much that happens that is unjust, that doesn't get punished, it doesn't get taken care of. And here we see that the Messiah is the judge of all the earth, and he will bring justice to the nations, um, not just punishing sin, but making things right. And I love that it shows the heart of Jesus, you know, a bruised reed he will not snap, and a smoking flax he will not, he won't quench it out. You ever feel like a bruised reed or a smoking flax? You ever feel like your faith is kind of, I joke about my faith or love for the Lord being like a pilot light, you know, on a gas stove, you kind of keep it burning. You look, there's that tiny little blue flame, but it sure ain't a bonfire, you know? <laughs> Sometimes you just feel like, man, my faith is just like this little pilot light. Please don't walk by and blow it out. And Jesus doesn't walk by and blow it out. He uses his spirit and his people and his word to refresh us. And he's patient with us. Um, he doesn't despise our, our mustard seed faith, right? Our mustard seed love at times. All right. And then he'll establish Israel with the new covenant with the Lord. <clears throat> Excuse me. Would someone read 42, 5 to 7? I can if you don't want to, but just... That, that promise of redemption. I will give you as a covenant for the people. I think this is ultimately talking about Jesus. He is the covenant for the people. Um, so then he become a light to the Gentiles. Would someone like to read chapter 49, verses 1 through 7?
Isn't that beautiful? It's too light a thing to recover Israel. You're going to be a light to the whole world. Again, fulfilling God's covenant of grace promises to Adam and Eve and and to Abraham and on down the line, right? Salvation would come to the world. Again, yes, hell is real and there will be people in it. But the Bible presents this picture of the the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Not as the waters cover the earth, right? There's land in there. How much of the waters cover the sea? What percentage of the waters cover the sea? All of it, right? I mean, it took me a while to realize that. You know, years, actually. Oh, wait, the waters cover the sea. Oh, Oh, okay, all of it. There's this optimistic, ultimate view of the spread of the knowledge of Christ and the salvation of the nations. All right, obviously, the, to me, the glowing heartbeat of the book, he would suffer willingly to take away the sins of his people, and I'm just going to call it. I, I get to read this one. So. Isaiah 52, 13 to 53, 12. It's a long passage, but just soak this in, okay? Let me pray. Father, please let this come to us afresh. We thank you for Jesus who suffered in our place. Would you please open our eyes to the cross right now, Lord? In Jesus' name. Amen. 52, 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were, as, were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Pause. It's interesting. The, the people of Israel like keep on seeing but don't see. Keep on hearing but don't understand. And this is talking about the kings of the earth being given uh, the Holy Spirit to, to know and, and trust in Jesus. Uh, 53.1 Who has believed what they heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Amen? Amen. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter... And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man at his death. 
although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Thank you, Jesus. Is that ever not relevant? You know, like, oh, yeah, well, that's all right. You know, it always hits home, right? Um, I had a Jewish roommate at Warren Wilson, and our agreement was we wouldn't talk about religion unless he brought it up. But if you brought it up, it's no holds barred. You know, take the gloves <laughs> off. And we'd stay up till like 3 in the morning talking about Jesus and stuff at his request or whatever. And when I read this passage to him, or I asked him to read it, I don't remember what happened, but he read this. And it really shook him. And I hope that the Lord's going to use this eventually for his salvation. But it was, it was like a mental uh, struggle because it is so obvious and so detailed about Jesus Christ that it just like your categories are blown and you're trying to live two different lives. Like I cling to this religion and tradition and yet this is in my face and I really don't know what to do with this. And so when I close, I want to pray for my buddy Daniel. Um, I won't read these other passages, but the last thing is that he would, Jesus would be vindicated by God and rule forever as the promised Davidic king. He didn't just provide for our forgiveness. He has given us a new kingdom. We get to be part of a kingdom, his kingdom. And he will make a new heavens and a new earth. <clears throat> Let me pray. Thanks for your... Patience, maybe next week will be more discussion-y, but I wanted us to walk through Isaiah together, so thank you. Let me pray for us. Lord God, thank you for your justice. Again, thank you that you don't let sin go unpunished, that you care about crime, you care about people suffering, you care about victims, Lord. We pray that you'd help us to trust you in that and for your final plan. Lord, we pray that you would uphold justice even now and mercy in our country and throughout the earth, Lord. We pray that your word would continue to go forth for the salvation of the nations, including our own. And God, we, we pray that you continue to hold the hope of the gospel in front of us. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you so much for Jesus. He's our only hope, and he is a sure and certain hope. He's risen from the dead. And God, I want to we pray for, for my buddy Daniel and his wife Deborah and their children that you would save them. God, we pray that you'd bring your word back to his heart and help him to have the courage to lay his, his trust on, the, on the, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you all.